You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm here today with Andrew Winston, who is the founder of Winston Eco Strategies and also the author of a number of books. I think your first book was Green to Gold, and then you wrote a book called The Big Pivot, and most recently co-authored this book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take, co-authored with Paul Pullman, the former CEO of Unilever. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks. Good to be here. There's actually a fourth kind of bastard book that nobody knows about that was like my little secret child book that came out in the 08, 09 recession about using green to get back on your feed. It was called Green Recovery. It did okay, actually. I just never get a chance to talk about it, so well, I could throw it out yeah, there. Yeah, well, I don't have a copy, so I guess I can't talk about it. Yeah, it was a little book. It was meant to be like a quick read about, hey, green is good for business. Just remember that as you're in a slowdown. I've talked about it again or the same ideas again whenever we have like a downturn, but it's neither here nor there. Well, the other three will cover it. Well, okay, so I want to dig into this concept that green okay. is good for business, right? Because I do a lot of work with pension fund investors, and we are always yeah. discussing the concept of, ESG. And we can talk about ESG versus sustainability. But the big discussion there is, is there a trade-off or is there not a trade-off? So we discuss shareholder primacy and in the case of pension funds, right, they have a fiduciary duty to maximize the risk-adjusted returns for their beneficiaries. So many of them are troubled by the importation of these other considerations, which may or may not be in alignment, right? With And so it seems like half of the people who, who speak to them about ESG are saying, listen, you've got to give up some returns in exchange for consideration of these other factors. And then the other half of the people who present will say, no, this is a way for you to increase your returns because ESG is a leading indicator of future positive performance. And so I guess, you know, the big issue that everyone wonders is, are these in alignment or are they trade-offs? And just one more thing, I did a podcast recently where we discussed this very famous study where a bunch of management consultants, and you're a former management consultant, where the management consultants Mm -hmm. went into these factories in India and introduced them to some basic business concepts and their productivity like took off, right? Which meant that The reason for the lack of performance was just lack of knowledge, lack of education, lack of know-how. Now, if in fact ESG or sustainability and profitability are in alignment, then it seems like the solution is just a matter of education. And so all we need to do is just kind of strip the wool from the eyes of all these executives who are just missing the $20 bill on the sidewalk. So I guess the big question is trade-off or no trade-off? How long do we have in this? (laughs) I mean, so... There's a lot to unpack here, right? I've been in this space of business and society and the overlap or lack thereof at times for 20 years, right? And I've been writing multiple books and articles. Let's divide the conversation for a second, at least, between what you mostly were just asking about, which was investor return, which is under that ESG label, and sustainability. And I've written a lot about ESG versus sustainability. They're not the same thing. ESG as an investor term is used as a screen, used as a risk assessment of the company. Sustainability is a much broader concept about how does the company move through society? Is it contributing or not? They're different. And the conversation within a business about are there trade-offs or not in the capital expenses you make and the investments you make 
are not exactly the same as the ES. They're related, right? They're correlated, but not the same as the investor discussion. So let's take the investor one first, because mm -hmm. honestly, it's the least interesting to me. I think it has the least bearing on the real questions of like how our business interacting with the biggest challenges in the world. And let's say that if I had a short answer to that question, would anybody believe it? If I said, well, no, of course there's no trade-off or yes, of course there is. And I would love to know what half of the people are coming in and telling them they have to accept lower returns. I don't think anybody's saying that. Mm -hmm. Nobody goes in and says, I got this pitch for you. I got this fund. It's lower returns. Nobody says that. So let me answer it in two ways. One is to take the question seriously. And another one is to challenge the premise entirely. So one, does it affect returns? I don't know. It depends. And there's plenty of studies that show studies and studies, meta studies of studies that show that ESG funds have done just fine. You could find ones that say they do generally better. There's time period questions in those kinds of things. Like if you take it from the moment before the invasion of Ukraine to now, ESG funds don't outperform because oil stocks mm -hmm. have gone through the roof, right? But you take the last 10 years where it's tech funds, tech companies that have gone up outrageous amounts and tech is heavy in ESG funds, it looks completely different. But by and large, do I believe that taking into account your societal impacts and thinking about the ways your business kind of needs to move through the world will make you more valuable? Yes. And I've been doing this for 20 years and we can unpack that. But the larger question I have is, what does the question, does it outperform mean? And let me just challenge the whole concept. So even when there's a study that says, look, ESG outperforms, I don't usually throw it out there and tell everyone about it because I think the whole question is weird. If we knew there was an investment strategy of any kind that always outperformed, every dollar in the marketplace would go there. And honestly, the only investment strategy we know that pretty much does outperform most funds is index, right? You just buy an index fund. So it's not screened or not. It's not ESG or not. You just buy the market. There's a lot of the financial world, which is just creating products for people to buy. And they'll tell them we're going to help you get better returns, but they can't guarantee that. And so no one's ever asked if someone's walked into their office and said, we have a new tech fund, we have a new AI fund, we have a new healthcare fund, a bio, biotech fund. Have they said, but doesn't it, does it outperform? Does it sacrifice returns? No one asked that of any other investment thesis. And this correlates highly within companies. And I talk about this all the time with management teams. No one asks in business about any other kind of investment in the business, whether it will pay. They don't ask it that way. Of course, they say, what's the ROI, blah, blah, blah. But it doesn't start from the assumption that it must be anti-business. And so there's a much larger problem of the story and the narrative that we're all living in, that if you're not maximizing shareholder value in this quarter, and you're not defining that as literally just looking at the highest cash flow you can get in the moment, then you're somehow anti-business, which ignores all sorts of things you might want to do for longer than the quarter, like all R&D. Like you would never do any R&D. And by the way, R&D investing in this country and in most countries has fallen, right? Because of the increased short-term stock pressure. So I just find the question to be not useful, right? I don't know what it means to say, does it always outperform? No one has to prove that mm -hmm. in any investment strategy. Okay, so that's what I'd say about the investor side. We could pause there and then get to the whole, what does it mean in companies? So what does it mean to be a business? Which is, I think, far more interesting to me than how is a business as an investment? I never think the stock price of a company is a very good indicator of anything in the shorter run. 
in the longer run, it's supposed to indicate the net present value of future cash flows, some assumption about the future of the business. And if it doesn't equal that on some level, then the market's a casino and why are we even talking about it? And if it does, then are you doing the things that generates more value over the long term would seem to be more important than what you do this quarter. So the debate really, I think, is not between sustainable or not. It's mostly long-term versus short-term. And that's the crux of where the difference of discussion can be. But even that's not as clean as it used to be. So many things that fall under sustainability are really short-term mm -hmm. benefits. But there's plenty that are investments for the future. Yeah, I think that the academic research seems to suggest that screens have very little impact. They just sort of reshuffle who owns the shares. And so I think a lot of people in the investment community who are interested in promoting things like ESG are moving more towards sort of an activist investor stance where you buy shares in the company and then you begin a dialogue with the management team. But I think it's probably more often the case that the initiatives around sustainability originate within the companies. And then it's more like the management has to sell it to the investors rather than the other way around. And you describe it in the book in Net Positive about how when Unilever after Paul Pullman came in, decided to embrace a, a sustainability initiative that yeah. they changed the way they interacted with investors. And I found this yeah. interesting because they stopped releasing quarterly financials and reduced the amount of dialogue with the investors. Now, I would think that when you are shifting, say, from short-term performance indicators to long-term performance indicators, this would require like more communications, right? you know, more engagement with the investors. You know, if you yeah. look at what Amazon did for 20 years, they were able to have right. negative cash flow and zero profit, but their stock just kept going up and up because the leadership was able to communicate the value proposition. So, well, yeah, that's one interpretation. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, they just report the latest Fortune 500 just came out and they were negative profit again. Uh -huh. Is that a value proposition that they've been doing that off and on for the entire existence? Yeah. He played the reality distortion field on investors like nobody's business. He happened to generate the revenue growth that he said could happen because it, it was an obscene to think he would ever be the size of Walmart. And they're close. Mm -hmm. They're now number two. It is a remarkable story on sales. Has it been a lot of profit? I don't know. I mean, the profit on the AWS side, on the tech side, really high. How's the profit on the, or a retailer that can get you something you want in an hour in a box? I don't think it's that high. So... Yes, they've made that case better than anyone in the world. And I'd say there's a couple sectors like pharma that have always had a, done a good job of saying, we've got a 17-year investment in this molecule, and we're going to have drugs come out in 10 to 15 years, and we're going to make money for the next 10 years. That's a long story. Mm -hmm. Paul, you know, Unilever's decision, it wasn't that they would start, if someone wanted to talk to them, he would talk to them. He just said, we're not, we're not reporting to you quarterly. He just said, the time frame is ludicrous. And... I need my managers to, by the way, when he got there, there was a lot of very short-term, like we write in the book about getting their house in order, cut some costs. And he actually improved investing in R&D, in products, in marketing. He spent some more, but that needed more than three months. And he freed up middle to senior management to think in kind of broader terms, right? Like maybe this year I got to focus on getting the factory expenses down. Maybe this year I'm going to buy some new machinery for the factory, just as an example. And you don't, you're not as locked in on what's that going to say to earnings. There's lots of studies, as you said, showing maybe screens don't matter, but actually plenty that show there's some great stuff out of Harvard, a guy, Professor George Seraphim up there that looked at 
companies that prioritize sustainability, but prioritize the most material issues mm -hmm. for their business have consistently outperformed. Meaning, in other words, the ones who do it well. So the really short answer to people when they say, does sustainability make a company outperform? I say, I don't know, does innovation make a company outperform mm -hmm. or marketing? It's like the ones who do it well, yeah, it helps them outperform. The ones who don't, there's plenty of bad marketers, plenty of people who spent way too much on a Super Bowl ad, right? And it didn't help them. It's the ones who do it well. And I think there's been a long correlation between doing well on sustainability and doing well as a business. And the correlation causation there is difficult and impossible to parse. And it's because companies that are good at most things are good at most things. Yeah. You know, they've got the culture, they've got the buy-in, they attract the best people. And there's plenty of stories we could, I mean, not plenty, but there's a few that get a lot of attention that are told as if, oh, this company went down the sustainability path and that's why they failed. There's really not much mm -hmm. to prove that, right? We can talk about some of the examples people throw out there like Danone. It's just another story, right? There's a lot of reasons companies decline or flatten out or CEOs get pushed out. Many, many reasons, right? It's not usually one thing. So we can dive into that if you like. But I just, I think the investor lens on this is just to me not as interesting. I mean, you're saying you got to sell it to investors, but I keep, I always come back to why. What are you selling to investors? So I'll say the greatest thing for Paul, to, in my mind, is that he freed himself up from what's hundreds of meetings a year. Like I had other CEO clients I've worked with, hundreds a year selling the stock to investors. And if you've got a decent earnings story and innovation pipeline and all that, what are you selling? Like, why do you have to sell the stock? The investors will find you. And that's what happened at Unilever. Mm -hmm. Like people walked out, Goldman walked out of the first meeting angry, and they came back and they were the biggest investor within six to 12 months. They'll invest in you if you're doing well, right? If you've got the numbers to show, they can go off in a snit for a little while, but how long are they going to be away? How long can something be an undersold stock that's a well-known company, underbought, excuse me, how long can that go on, really, if the company's got the earnings? Well, I mean, this gets back to branding. I think one of the mechanisms by which embracing these principles can be converted back into positive performance is that it provides a strong enhancement of the brand and in a bunch of different areas, of course. So I teach in my strategy class, we talk about branding and the definition of branding is, I think, very limited because it focuses on the difference between the price that you can charge to consumers for the branded product versus right. the generic product. But, you know, that focuses on the consumer side of things. I mean, there's also the branding in the labor marketplace and also in, in the capital right. marketplace. And I think a lot of what... All of it. Yeah, and a lot of what you're describing in the book is in the labor marketplace, right? So this makes it easier for you to recruit good people who are purpose-driven, in addition right. to getting people to feel more comfortable buying your product and your stock. Well, and I think the employee side is that is almost all you need to talk about. Uh -huh. Like I get a lot of questions and pushback. Do consumers really buy more green? It depends. There's a lot of reasons we buy things. Lots of things have price premiums. If we all bought just the cheapest functional thing, there'd be two or three kinds of toothbrush, mm -hmm. right? There'd be two or three kinds of car. There's lots of things we buy on, right? You, no one needs to buy a BMW, right? They can buy a much cheaper functional car. And so people go, oh, they're just buying the Tesla because the green premium. I'm like, okay. They think it's sexy. They like the green side. That's the thing they like. People buy a Lamborghini because they like that it's the most expensive. Mm -hmm. I think the consumer side is always hard to predict, right? The employee side, not that hard to predict. And I have now heard repeatedly from every sector that they have an easier time getting people. And I've heard directly that big oil and gas companies are seeing a harder time getting the best engineers to come work for 
what is on some level a dying industry, and that's part of it, but also just not one that younger people feel comfortable with, that they think is bringing down the planet. And I see this, I've heard so many stories of service businesses, you wouldn't think they have a big footprint. People walking into job interviews asking them, what's your sustainability plan? What are you doing as a law firm, as a consulting firm? Everything. And that's the deal now. We don't have lifetime employment anymore. We stopped that 20, 30 years ago. So people look for a job that shares their values. They think they can grow in, you know, all those things they need. But one of them, for a lot of them, is values. So that alone is pretty valuable. And I just I want to point out this brand value thing. I got a question just the other day from an executive team saying, okay, they sent me a few questions ahead of my talk and working with them. And they said, well, you know, do we just do this for reputational value? And I basically said, what's wrong with reputational value? Mm-hmm. Doesn't that have, doesn't that have value? <laughs> like your reputation is, as like you said, how you attract capital, you attract people. But I don't know, you probably know this stat that the brand value, the intangible value of a company, 40, 50 years ago, you took the S&P 500, the tangible percentage of the market cap of the largest companies was 80, 90%. The stuff on the books, the machinery, the buildings. It's the exact opposite now. It's upwards of 90% of the S&P 500 market cap is intangible. So arguably, all of our financial systems, what the CFO works on every day is on 10% of the value. And the rest is in the market cap. So clearly the stock market is valuing it, but comes from a range of things, including your brand, including your attraction and retention of talent, including whether you're doing the right thing, communities like you, all the things that sustainability help build. The famous line, I think it was Buffett who said, I forget what he said, would you just take a, the pile of all the gold in the world or like Coke's brand? Like it was like mm-hmm. comparing like, which would you yeah. go off with if you could? And it was like, would you take a couple big brands with none of their assets? And the answer was kind of obvious. Yeah. Like, where can you create more value? So this isn't on the side of the business, right? This is core to how value is created and valued, right? That this is what we valued in the marketplace now is what that company stands for, not its physical assets, right? It's not the servers of Google that matter. It's the algorithms for good and bad. And they could pick that up and move it anywhere. Right. Well, definitely my MBA students, right? They all want to work for companies that at least espouse, right, sustainable yeah. values or maybe without using the term, some kind of net positive approach to the world. Yeah. But, you know. And they'll find out quickly if it's not legitimate. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's what I wanted to ask you, know. you because we all know about greenwashing, right, in the consumer yeah. space. And, you know, we see the same thing in the em- employer space. Not how, for long. Well, how, okay. So explain to me how it is that people can really get a good handle on whether this is legit. Because in my class, people will boo Chevron and students don't are right. reluctant to admit that they work for an oil company. But then if you look at the, some of the ESG ratings, right, you know, you'll have Philip Morris in there and Tesla's not in there. And so how are they supposed to make sense of this? You could presumably yeah. make a much bigger impact working at a Chevron than working at- uh, In theory. Yeah. If you went in there and invested heavily in say carbon sequestration or something like that. But that's not what you're doing as an entry engineer. Those decisions are being made a lot higher than mm-hmm. you. In theory, yes. But I don't think many MBAs fall for that. Is there greenwashing? I've never kind of believed there's as much as people like to cry. I think- I've always thought that the vast majority of what would look like greenwashing or stretching the truth is more, it's not like outright lying. Like, I mean, an outright lying example was VW, right? Saying our cars have this level of emissions as diesels and they actually rigged 
the machine to show you lower emissions that were not true. It was higher emissions. It was more unhealthy. That was lying, right? Like yeah. that was fraud. I think part of it is in just kind of everyday products, it's not so much greenwashing as it is talking about things that aren't really all that critical. They might be telling the truth. The example I've always used, I mean, this is going back some time now, but for years, banks, before they got into these much deeper discussions about what are they funding and setting net zero goals for their investments, they would put out, I remember like a super, honestly, like a Super Bowl ad about going to online banking and statements. And it was this ad that showed paper coming out of offices and people's homes and going back into trees. And it was like, look how much we're saving. We're saving the world. And I'm like, I was in this field for a while at that point. I'm like, it's great to use less paper in your accounts as a bank, but what really matters is where your trillions are going. That's it's not even close. So it's not like it's greenwashing. It's true. We're getting rid of paper. We're, you know, we're double-sided copying. It's just whether it matters. And there's just subtle versions of that all the time on products that talk about this package is more sustainable. That's true. But maybe it's a chocolate or it's a, a animal product kind of food. And they've done nothing on the footprint of chocolate or of beef or like they've actually not addressed the real issue. I just think there's less and less of that. More companies are pretty on top of now, like where is their actual footprint? And I don't think it's very hard for new employees to figure that out either and to say, are we really working on the real things or not? And you see the companies that get it and many, many more that just know they're supposed to do this, talking about more the right categories of things where their impacts really are. Yeah, they should be walking the talk in every area, but there's only you know what I'm saying? There's only so much that matters about certain things in your operations or in your products. There's the big stuff that is 80, there's an 80-20 rule in everything. And are you working on the 80? Are you working on the 20? So it's not exactly greenwashing. It's just, it's distraction. (laughs) It's not talking about the right stuff. So I think it's really hard to fool employees. They're right in the middle of it. And now they have a voice. They might have a blog from inside or just putting some TikTok up or it happens all the time. Amazon was nowhere on sustainability for years. They were like the laggard in the largest companies in the world. And employees Mm -hmm. brought them out. Employees wrote open letters, went press conferences, stuffed right to Bezos and said, we got to do more on climate. And now Amazon's the biggest buyer of renewables in the world. I think it got his attention. And then he's like, oh, it's cheaper. I was reading everywhere that it wasn't because he was wrong. And now they invest more than anybody in renewables because it's cheaper. So it's in line with what he's trying to do. But he now can tell his employees, look, we're doing the right thing. But I mean, it puts a big burden on people if they have to do this kind of investigation, right? There are plenty mm-hmm. of people that will use a recyclable straw on their first class right. plane ticket and think they're making an impact because, you know, it's just too hard to keep track of all these things. Right. And you cite one example in the book where I think it was a mattress company. The employees found out that they were selling mattresses to the government to be used in Immigration detention. camps, detention camps in, in Mexico. Yeah, it was border detention yeah, centers. Right, and, was, and this yeah. was horrifying to the employees. But, you know, you could argue better that they sleep on mattresses than they sleep on the floor. Like, I mean, how do you know the impact? If you shut down a factory because the living conditions of the employees are poor, are you making them better off or worse off? This does require some yeah. expertise, right? Some understanding of... Uh, everyone should be an educated citizen, but these yeah. are complicated things. Well, no, and no one can be educated on every element. I have an app that tells me, I'm a pescatarian, I eat some fish. I have an app that tells you like yeah. how sustainable or different it's fish. It's Monterey, you know. I think it's the Monterey. Yeah, yeah. the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Yeah. I don't even look at it that much. I know enough, I don't eat that much, but it's an app for one choice. It right. is difficult. So 
that's what's always been a little bit off about the thousand things you can do to save the planet, all those books for years and years. Let's be clear, there was a fairly concerted effort by vested interests to always make it about individual mm -hmm. choice, to just throw up yeah. their hands and say, hey, we just produce the oil, people drive their cars up and want it, or we this is the food we sell at our store. If they don't want the salads at McDonald's, we can't make them, which is disingenuous at best. We create needs all the time in business. Like again, we'd have two toothbrushes if we didn't create needs. So we can sell more sustainable products, right? It's what's become, I think, more apparent and you get a lot of pushback on the just change your individual actions thing is that the problems are systemic, right? The reason an individual can only do so much on their footprint is because they can't control that the grid is 80% coal in their area or whatever. Like the way that they can impact that is how they vote, right? How they support companies that are promoting the right things or not. Like it's much bigger elements of their lives than just literally what are they buying day to day. They can vote with their feet and they should. And there's a few things people can do that move their footprint noticeably, like eating less meat is the most immediate thing you can do, like starting right now. But there's actually not a thousand things that really have any impact. There's a few. There's a handful. What you eat, what you drive, how close to work you are, you live. And a bunch of these decisions don't come every day. They might come every decade, right? And who you vote for, who you support. Are you supporting the systems changes? So there's a lot more, I think, understanding, and especially Gen Z, that we're talking about systemic change, right? And the leverage of where they want to make noise, where they want to slow things down, it's gotten a lot smarter. The NGOs are much smarter than they used to be. And they put the pressure on where I think it it often matters. But we need systemic change. That's the In the end, that's the point of our yeah. book is I always write things about what business should do, but it's about what business should do within a larger system. And I think business has to help bring about this better world by working with government and with NGOs and others to solve problems together. And that means going into these kinds of discussions with respect and some trust, which is really at low levels in the world, it's a challenge. Like you need to go in where a business leader is sitting down with government and isn't just thinking the government only wants to destroy business and suck us dry. And the government person isn't just thinking business doesn't care about anybody but their own profits. And the NGO isn't sitting there throwing a pox on both your houses. <laughs> like you actually have to come in and think, okay, these are people who actually want their world and their kids' world to probably function pretty well and would like it to be healthy if possible. I mean, that's what Paul, in writing with a CEO, it was really interesting because he would say, he talks to CEOs, right? Every consultant or writer who says they talk to CEOs all the time is mostly lying. It's CEOs who talk to CEOs <laughs> and a few world leaders. And he said, nobody really wants more people to be hungry or the climate to get worse. I mean, and I believe him. I don't think most people want that, but they're caught in a system. And it's whether they're willing to work on those really hard problems that take systemic change. It's bigger than any one company, any one CEO. And are they willing to go out and kind of have those conversations? Yeah. I think it's happening, you know? Yeah, I mean, I want to dig into that because at the beginning of the book, you criticize, I think rightfully, this view that, oh, the free market's going to solve everything, right? Yeah. And of course, there are people that fall prey to this illusion that there's such a thing as the unfettered free, free market, market, right? Of course, right. right? We all know no such thing. that the real point of the free market, the understanding is that it's a decentralized system. And if the prices are right, then you don't have to think too much about the downstream consequences, right? right? Because that's all packed into the price. So I don't right. need to think about, well, does aluminum or copper require more labor or more capital? Because it's just, I just have the price, right? But it seems like 
in a presence of externalities, you do have to right. think about this. So, Well, you have to get the price right. Exactly. You have to internalize. So, if the prices are right, is the only sentence that matters. Yeah. <laughs> the only phrase that matters about a market, because I get asked this regularly for 20 years, every talk, someone stands up and goes, yeah, but don't you believe in free markets? And I'm like, sure. But like a market only works if you price things. Imagine going into an actual market, like a bazaar, and think there's no prices. Mm -hmm. It's absurd to think that our market is functioning when it's got base levels of corruption built in. Look, I got an, it's funny, I had a Twitter exchange once where someone, I just espoused something about what I believe. And they said, where'd you get your economics degree? I'm like, Princeton. Like I have an economics degree. I have an MBA. I understand how these things work. But I also know that my economics degree from 30 plus years ago is almost useless because we learned supply and demand lines, marginal cost curves, new entrants will bring the cost down to zero, which assumed no monopoly power or not totally monopoly, but what happens in tons of sectors. Now there's four or five or six players that control everything and have obviously giant levels of profit built in. In the Fortune 500, Apple just reported 99 billion of net income. Does that sound like a new entrants can bring your profits down kind of world? We're not in that world. And they also have power over the levers of government that give them more and more power. So like, it's a joke. And then that's not even including the behavioral economics and behavioral psychology that has become normalized, understood Nobel Prizes for that show that we don't make decisions on maximizing utils. Nobody makes decisions like that. But that said, markets are a pretty strong mm -hmm. signal, but we don't price things. You can dump a ton of carbon into the atmosphere in most industries and in most places in the world for zero. And something that's priced at zero will get used infinitely, which is what we're doing, right? So like you get this price right, sure, let's put a big price on carbon and your choice about, well, what makes sense in that value chain more, the zinc or the carbon, or what's the total life cycle cost of an EV? Those will pan out fairly well. I'm fairly confident in clean technologies if you price the cost to the society of more and more carbon emissions. If you price that honestly, yeah. we'll speed up on the clean economy. It's already winning, but we'll go f much faster and towards other elements that are important. Things are hard to put numbers on. I'm not saying this is easy. Carbon's the easiest. It's a ton. You can measure it. What's the price on biodiversity? What's the price on nature? It, really hard. People, smart people working on it. But we price things at zero right now, which can't be right. But, but that's what puzzles me, right? So we all know this. So why is it that there is so much investment by managers and investors in sustainability initiatives within corporations and within investment yeah. portfolios, and so little in the political sphere. I mean, it seems like yeah. we've just defaulted to the private sector is going to solve this, which is the position mm -hmm. that people within the sector Somewhat. would critique. I haven't met a CEO who doesn't profess to support sustainability. I haven't met an investor that doesn't profess to support sustainability. And so I'm trying yeah. to figure out, well, okay, if everybody supports it, then who's opposing the legislation that would get the prices well, right? Well, they are. Yeah. No, but fundamentally they are. There's a huge, huge disconnect. And we talk about it in the book as kind of a circle of influence and kind of we call level five is the policy, mm -hmm. right? And there is a very clear disconnect between most companies and if not their own government relations at the very least, the trade associations that they're associated with. And this is well known. There's some great NGOs like Influence Map that are putting out data on this. I'm on the board of a small NGO that's pushing tech companies in particular called Climate Voice, pushing tech companies to get into DC, get into Brussels. 
and get behind the right policies. And there's just a fundamental disconnect because it comes back to this idea that you mentioned fiduciary responsibility earlier. We could take that apart for a while, but what is your responsibility? And the story that we have in our heads is that companies are supposed to maximize short-term shareholder value. And so even though they've got these goals, they believe they're supposed, but it's not just the short-term value. It's the, as you said, this obsession or this belief that the market solves everything has led to a belief that, well, then government's always wrong. Any government involvement is always wrong. I think there's people waking up on that in different sectors. I was speaking at the Royal Bank of Canada a year or two ago, and the CEO there had said it on stage while I was there, but had just said it in his annual shareholder meeting, something about markets can't solve this all. We need government to do the thing they're good at. We need business to do the things they're good at. I was like, wow, this is a big bank CEO coming right out and like outing himself as a not free market above all, because it's actually ludicrous to think any part of this triumvirate of business, government, and civil society are going to be able to do this alone. There's such a strong belief in business that government must always be wrong, and it's always a waste of money, that it really, it's dysfunctional, right? Because there's things like literally infrastructure, the scale of which we need, the kind of grid we need, so that when you put up your solar or wind farm, you can get the power to places all over the country. The kind of investment we need in the right kinds of rail or the right kinds of transportation on logistics, on tons of things, on internet broadband. These are government scale things, right? And to show you this disconnect between policy and their goals, before the IRA bill, which is the biggest investment in climate and technology the world's ever seen, there was debates about the Build Back Better bill, which had some of the same components. And I was talking to Ford while it was like the week it was getting debated. And I said, what is your position on this? And they said, we're behind any of the elements of the bill that invest in the clean economy, which was a really interesting way of parsing because the other part of the bill was paying for it by rolling back the Trump era tax cuts. Mm -hmm. Like the bill paid for it by saying, we're going to take back some of the money you didn't really need. And so they didn't want to say anything publicly to support that because they're never supposed to support tax increases. And so I just said to them, well, you have now said, and all the big auto companies have said they're going to sell only EVs by 2035, 2040. That only happens if the charging infrastructure is there, right? I have one EV and one hybrid. I can't get only EVs unless charging stations start to become as common and as quick as my gas station. And Ford said, well, we have a goal to build 60,000 charging stations, which is great, but we need like 2 million. So it has to be government money also, public and private, but massive government spending on things like charging. And they didn't support the bill that would actually have put money into that. So I just thought, to me, it wasn't even strategically smart. Like you've now set a goal and you started pulling all your money out of internal combustion engine investment. Most of the companies aren't investing in that anymore. You've put all of your attention into EVs and you're not doing the policies that are needed to have the infrastructure in place. It's like building a great new plane and not building out the runway. So I don't know what to make of that disconnect. It is non-strategic. It is unstrategic. It just shows to me the power of the belief that we're always supposed to go about things a certain way in business. And that means always lowering taxes because that's my fiduciary responsibility. Even if my combined taxes from my sector and others would help pay for the infrastructure we need, because it doesn't come from nothing. The money comes from somewhere. And these are really, I don't get it. I don't fully get it, right? It's just the power of old way of looking at things, I think, rather than getting, okay, we're going to unleash a lot 
I mean, every time the government throughout history has put some serious money into fun, some form of infrastructure or new technology, it's unleashed way more value. Mm -hmm. The government's the first buyer of most things. They bought semiconductors for the military in 1960 or 1950, whatever, right? When they were just orders of magnitude more expensive than they are today. It's always the case. So I just, I don't know how, you, how we find the right balance between understanding that we need government as business and working with them to set the right kinds of policies. That's part of the point of our book is you got to work together. And sometimes that means saying to the government, hey, we need less regulation on this. We need to be freer to go blah, blah, blah. But sometimes it means we need more. <laughs> like, yeah. We need more so these guys over here don't actually undermine the whole system we're building. I know to many people listening, I sound like a communist or something for saying this. And I don't know how to have this conversation without getting that kind of bizarre pushback on what's just factual to me. But I'm willing to have the debate over and over again. That's what I partly do for a living. So, Well, does the relationship between one's stated sustainability policy and the kind of stance on legislation have to do with the original question of trade-off or no trade-off? I mean, if you're, say, Unilever and you have created this differentiator, right? You are right. now considered the sustainable CPG company, right? And this makes you better than Procter & Gamble. This makes you better than Nestle. Right. This makes you better and you're attracting better workers and you're attracting customers who care and so forth. If this is a good thing as a differentiator, you know, if the law required everybody to do it, that would eliminate your differentiator, yeah. right? So you, you might not support it. If it's yeah. costly to you, like if you're making huge financial sacrifices right. by- Then you want everyone then, to then do Then you it. want everybody to do it, right? So does it make sense that, does this question of the degree to which there's a trade-off or not a trade-off help to explain when the public stance on legislation is in alignment or not in alignment with one's policies internally? Yeah, somewhat. I mean, one of my favorite stories in the book, actually, it happens to take place in Russia, which I can't talk about as much because Russia is such a disaster. It doesn't matter. It was Russia. It was just the Russian part of the business. I talked to an executive there. She was a really great sustainability mm -hmm. executive. They had wanted a few years back, a while back, to launch a new line in Russia of a Unilever product that was all in 100% recycled yeah. packaging. So they built a couple facilities. They spent the money. They were able to get enough sourcing of the material for their business. Now, they could have gone to government and partly did and said, we need some tax breaks. We built these new machines. But what they really wanted to do was bring the cost of the recycled content material down. So they went to government and said, you know, you have these charges for flows of materials, of weight, of plastics or whatever. Can you shift your charges so that you're making more money in the government by charging more for the virgin stuff that has a bigger footprint and charge nothing or subsidize the good side so the whole system moves to more of this material and that's beneficial for everyone and that's the kind of when i say like working with government in business that's what i'm talking about is like go and say okay what part of this story is more expensive so when people say to me it's more expensive to be sustainable i say what is it that there's no technology yet and it's really too far away or is it there is but it's not at scale and the best stories the ones i love are companies saying okay how do we get this to scale and i've seen this for years in this field i mean i was on a like a store tour of walmart like 15 years ago and they had just put on those like kind of lighting things that basically use natural light better and they were showing it in the tour was Target and Kohl's. And like, mm -hmm. they were showing it to everyone else. They're like, because as big as we are, we can't bring the cost down of these new building controls unless everybody does it. That's what I'm talking about, right? Is okay, so what's more expensive? And then the second part of your question, I think was, well, then doesn't that wipe out your competitive advantage? 
Maybe. One of the things that I came out of doing this work with Paul through that was probably the biggest insight for me was thinking, okay, if you get all these other things we're talking about in place, which is getting your purpose in line, getting your house in order, getting the right people in place, getting them excited, they're embracing this, they're engaged, you've got the network with your stakeholders, you've got all this business value, then even if you make some systemic change in the sector and everybody has this access to a cheaper version or a better technology, you're probably moving quicker. Mm-hmm right? You've got the relationship with your customers. They trust you more, right? If Unilever says this is a more sustainable product, like you said before, it's hard to gauge every little product. So people sometimes use brands, right? People know going into Patagonia, they've looked enough to know that if I buy a Patagonia jacket or when they got into food, Patagonia does food now because they thought it was a big place to, to help with carbon by doing agriculture a different way. You believe the brand, right? And if anything goes wrong in that brand story and it shows they actually have been a disaster, it would kill them, right? Like they have to keep up, they have to keep it up by doing it. So I think you can move quicker and have competitive advantage if you've got the pieces in place. You're just a better run, Mm -hmm. sustainable focused company. And you're not going to get to the cost structure you want on some things unless you bring everybody along. And I've seen that work over and over again. And I think it's speeding up. There are now massive conversations going on in huge sectors like cement, steel, aluminum. The World Economic Forum brings them together. Others, academics, people are coalescing these groups to say, how do we get to zero carbon steel? And they're working together in the sector and they're getting what's called the first movers coalition, big buyers saying, we will buy the low carbon steel. We will start buying it at the higher cost until we bring the cost down, right? Like that's how you change markets. It requires what's sometimes called collusion, right, within sectors. So there's some danger there. But like the UK just quietly, I think the EU lowered the restrictions on like companies talking to each other in their sectors if it was a carbon related like discussion. You you know what I mean? To say, okay, you guys got to work together. We can't worry about the, you're going to collude on price. We got to get some coordination and you need a government or an academic there or an NGO there to kind of coordinate it. But we're going to have to trust a little bit that there's good work going on together. These are hard things. And none of this is easy, right? These are big systemic changes, but I, it is happening. Mm-hmm. And I think we underestimate how fast some things change and what exponential growth looks like. People are still telling me that it's such small sales of like EVs. I'm like, not for long, not at the curve, the first or second derivative of that curve, if you know what, like mathematically, it's not going to be long before you and everybody you know is considering an EV. It's already hitting tipping points all over the place. And they're just better. I have a, I've had an EV for three years. It's just better car. Like, you know, it's not like a sacrifice at all. I've just had people drive it who are not sustainable at all, hate it all. And they're like, oh, I'm getting an EV. Right. It's just because you put your foot on the gas and you're like, oh, wow, this is the fastest car I've ever driven. Even though it's a boxy, I have a Kia. You know, we didn't get a Tesla. So that's where we're headed. Well, I wanted to question you about conceptual clarity, right? Because mm-hmm. you've been working in the world of sustainability, which is primarily around environmental impact and carbon neutrality. The book Net Positive is about a much kind of wider yeah. set of goals. And I think it's really more about measuring spillovers and externalities and so forth. And then ESG, of course. And so a lot of these things get confused with one another. Yeah. And sometimes if people reject one plank, they tend to reject all of them. Our dean at my business school has made it a a point to emphasize sustainability as a differentiator for our school at Haas. And so, you know, the faculty were all brought together and we had a meeting and and the goal was like, Hey, we want you to include sustainability in your courses. And everybody's like, that's great. Yeah. Now, but what is it? (laughs) And 
What does um, that mean? And I was like, right. you know, I've been teaching finance for 30 years and yeah. we talk about intertemporal trade-offs. That sounds like yeah. sustainability to me. You know, I teach micro and we talk about externalities and that sounds like sustainability to me. And it's like, no, actually sustainability is really about the environment. It's okay. And then someone raises their hand and they say, well, what about child labor? Is that sustainable? Right. Like, oh yeah, that, that is. What yeah. about trans rights? Well, is that sustainable? Yeah, that's sustainable. And at some point it expands to include pretty much any kind of social impact. And then you're kind of left back right. in square one. So do we need to be very careful when we are talking about these things? It seems like the net positive initiative is much more ambitious. It's much more all-encompassing. Yeah. The it sustainability is. initiative is primarily around the environmental impact. Yeah, it depends on who you're talking to. People who work in and around this field will say, oh, the ESG discussion, it's too much about E. It's all about the environment. Others will say it's too much about the S. And it depends on which sector they're coming from, which kinds of companies, because the agenda has varied, right? There's places where something like child labor is a really big deal. You're Nike, you're making chocolate products, you're Mars. There's labor in West Africa, there's children, there's human rights issues. It's more the S, right? You're pharma. You're not paying as much attention to the fact that you actually use a ton of energy and water. Your real focus or the attention you've gotten has been about access to drugs and whether poor people and whether you're solving poor people's diseases, right? Like it varies. And I got into this originally. I wasn't, a, I hate the phrase tree hugger as if there'd be something wrong with that, but I didn't come from that kind of background. I came from a business background. To me, it was, and it always and remains a very practical consideration, which is if you use up everything, you use up your assets, you're not going to operate very well. And we're using up the shared assets of the world at a really rapid pace. And we're making the climate unstable. And it's just surreal to me that we still have to prove the case that maybe we don't want to do that to the climate with what's going on. Every year, every season, there's something really awful going on, like in the Southeast right now, Texas. These are temperatures we didn't grow up with, not sustained. And the scale of wildfires, the scale of heat waves, it's all getting worse. And by the way, costing companies and economies a lot. This is now a really expensive thing, which is why, again, I don't really worry that it gets off the corporate agenda. It's just too expensive now, right? It's like your supply chain's getting screwed up by extreme weather. You're going to pay attention. It doesn't matter if some governor's yelling at you about woke. But is there a risk of putting everything together? Yeah. I mean, there was the Build Back Better was part of it. There were some kind of green-related bills floating around. And at the time four or five years ago, I did think it may be trying to bite off too much, but I guess what I've come around to and working with Paul's kind of shifted me somewhat. I did get into this for kind of resources, climate, is that everything's too related to try to parse it out too much. Just on the climate and say inequality issue, the poorest people on the planet are the least responsible for climate and basically the ones getting hit the hardest. So there's a deep connection there. And the people producing all of the emissions over the last 50 to 100 years are the richest. The richest billion or so of us have created the entire problem. So it's pretty, I hate to use the word rich, it's pretty ironic of us to be like, everybody share in the cleanup. It's like we came in, we drank all the beer at a party, we threw the cans everywhere and some late arrivals were like, hey, you guys can clean up. There's just some fundamental fairness issues, but almost more practical than that is that the kinds of problems we're solving now, you need large buy-in, you need political buy-in, which means you need a mass movement. And you're not going to probably get that unless you bring along the people who have some other concerns about fairness, about justice, about equity, who can't put climate right at the top of their list 
while you're building a coal plant right next to them. It's not the climate problem that's bothering them. It's the health. It's the fairness. There's just too much connection. It doesn't mean you have to address everything all at once. You know, like there are, like I said, sectors and companies where there's particular issues. So there's the sustainable development goals, right? There's like 15 categories of impact. And then there's like a thing about peace and there's a thing about partnerships. But there's categories of impact that describe what would be a thriving world getting rid of hunger, giving people jobs, enough education, tackling climate. Most companies, now big companies, they look at that list, they use it as part of their goal setting, and they don't really say, here's what we're doing on all 17. They say, here's the four or five that are most material to us. It goes back to what I said earlier about the study from Harvard. The companies addressing the most material issues do get the most value out of sustainability in all of the ways we're talking about, saving money, brand, all of it. So I think it's about prioritization. The need to work on all of them is where you get to like CEO level, government level. I sometimes hear from companies, we can't tackle all these issues because there's too many metrics. I'm like, well, no one person is. You're not asking the H&R person to do your carbon footprint, right? You're asking them to look at the diversity and gender parity metrics. Like it comes together up at the top. The CEO and C-suite need to look at everything. And unfortunately for them, they don't have much of a choice anymore. And Mm -hmm. I was speaking with a CEO group recently and they not complained, but they said, the CEO job is much harder than it ever was before. Well, clearly, look at what's going on, right? You got to chime in on an LGBTQ law if you're Disney. These are hard things. I can't say I feel too bad for CEOs. The average Fortune 500 CEO, what's 10, 15 million a year? Like, they're getting paid a lot. Like, they're supposed to deal with the hard problems, and they're now being put to the test. And I'm not saying these things are easy, but, and I have these debates all the time. People say, well, how can my company respond to everything? They don't have to. But just the hard reality is that if you don't say something about an issue, you're still saying mm-hmm. something. What Disney learned was what, by trying to stay out of it originally, their gay employees and gay customers were like, what are you doing? What are you saying about us? And so then they came out, then they got slammed from the Florida government, which is a really bad sign. If a government says, we don't like the way you spoke about an issue, we're going to come down on you financially. That's fascism. That's just the definition of it. And Iger got quiet for a while. He came in, took over from the CEO who didn't know what to do. (laughs) And he's fought back. And I think been really effective at it and just said, this is what we stand for. I think the only mistake Disney made actually was they'd win it alone. What I've seen be really effective in these situations is when 100 CEOs get together, sign a letter and say, we don't agree with this policy on social level. We don't think this is fair to the gay community. I mean, that's happened many times. And big traditional companies signing these letters, Walmart and others, when there's anti-gay bills floating around. So I think companies have to do it together and say, systemically, we don't agree. We've seen it in places, right, where the all-star game will pull out of a city if they think there was something wrong going on. Their Delta, during the voter suppression Mm -hmm. in Georgia, Delta made noise and got, they got hit. But I've never seen a company really be worse off from this. Nike put Colin Kaepernick at the center of their campaigns, what, six, seven years ago. They sold way more. So even financially, if you want to be just back to the financial, it's really done well for most of these companies to stand up for what some would call a progressive agenda, but what many just call a rights agenda. And what anybody under 25 just calls life. Like I have two teenage boys and they have no idea what we're all talking about and battling about over gender. They don't get why we care. And frankly, I don't really either. Like someone else wants to live their life however they want to. I don't understand why that's my, what that has to do with me. You want to be called they? Okay. I don't care. Well, and, and who am I to tell you you can't? Yeah. I just, I don't understand how we got from the freedom of that was so important in this country to starting to tell people how they have to live their lives. 
I, re- I don't get how we got there. And I think companies are in the middle of it because if you're Walmart, you have like 2 million employees. You are a country, right? Walmart once said, their CEO, a few CEOs ago said, we have all the same problems as society because we're as big. Basically said, we have healthcare problems. Like, is everyone covered? You know, we have the same problems America has because we have like 1.5 million American employees. So yeah, they're in the middle of it. They're too big. They're too big not to be. You know, these companies are, I don't think people realize how big they are, right? Like just shockingly huge. And we're not used to it. Uh We don't know how to deal with it. Well, one of the things that you point out in the book, Net Positive, is that managers will frequently respond to short-term considerations by shareholders around financial performance. And it comes at the expense of long-term financial performance. Is there a danger that companies can respond to short-term considerations around social impact. So your employees get upset about something or your shareholders get upset about something that's related to positive impact. And then you you respond, even if their concerns might be misguided because they don't understand the long-term. And I was thinking in the book, you talk about, I mean, Unilever is a multinational, right? They have a presence everywhere, a lot of literally everywhere. Yeah. And the concerns and considerations of different countries are very different. And so to some extent, we might think, well, the shareholders in the West and the employees in the West know better. And so they're more further down this journey and more sophisticated when it comes to things like environmental impact. And so we're going to let them kind of drive the train. One of the things that I really liked about what they did is how they required senior executives or entry-level managers, I guess it was, in Unilever Hindustan to live in the countryside and actually understand. I was like, whoa. But then you also describe a story where there was an ad that was run in Australia, which the Indonesians didn't like. And so they kind of had to pull it. If the senior leadership has a good sense of what they're trying to do, is there a danger that they will get kind of whipsawed by the maybe misguided or short-term considerations? of their employees and customers. Look, I mean, I've just expressed my view that I don't understand personally why it matters what someone wants to be called. But in my work or what I'm telling companies, I'm just telling what I think are realities, which is the fact is if you say nothing about an issue, you are still saying something. And so that's the challenge, right? You can say they could get whipsawed. But I think in talking to Paul and seeing him as a, he's just a very kind of morally centered guy. And I think his view is kind of like, if you know where your principles are and what you believe in, you can stay pretty consistent. I mean, they were obviously pulled. The ad from Australia was like a gay community. There, it's a, It was a pride-related kind of product pitch, I think, on an ice cream. I'm not even sure if it was Ben & Jerry's one, maybe one of their other ice cream brands. And it played because of the nature of the campaign and the brand. I think it played online and it got to people in Indonesia where, or parts of the world where being gay was illegal. Well, we saw this with and, Bud Light, right? So Bud know, Light had this huge blowback. Well, that, that's Bud Light, I think, was just a massive... I'd say it was a massive mistake, not in the way maybe others would. I think let's, we can come back to that. But I think in this case where it's legal, here's what they've chosen to do. And I talked to Indonesian executives like you can't in that country, you can't support gay marriage, but the company has a global policy of partner benefits. So the gay community in a country like Indonesia, it's pretty easy to figure out which companies are going to enable you to live the life that you want to as best you can in that country. It doesn't mean you're getting the CEO of Indonesia, Unilever or PNG or whatever to come out in March. It means that you know you're going to get partner benefits probably because that's a global rule at the company. And sometimes the company has put themselves out there. I mean, in India, they were running tea ads showing Muslim and Hindu families coming together to have tea. Really effective kind of beautiful ads. 
they didn't run a campaign against President Modi saying, how dare you have Muslim Hindu violence? They just said, here's what we can do as a brand, right? Here's what we can say, have a cup of tea together. It fits the brand. And they actually supported the trans community in India, like way ahead of others. Again, I think they've just felt like the broader you are open, the more customers. So let's look at Bud Light. I actually think their couple of their marketing execs said, oh, here's a whole community, the gay and trans community that's growing, has more and more power under 25, under 30. We want some younger drinkers. Literally all they did was send a can celebrating or to this trans woman. It wasn't an act. I mean, she's just a trans woman with a good social media following. They did what they do, which is send social media influencers. Now, I don't totally get it as a 50 plus year old man, but my kids, influencers are huge, right? They are huge business. Some of these guys, there's a guy named Mr. Beast, who's a social media guy, who's going to be the first billionaire, according to like Fortune, from endorsements, from everything. Just the, they are their own kind of media companies. They sent one who has a lot of clout, a can. And then Kid Rock is the singer, whatever he is, shooting a case of Bud Light. I'm sorry, some of it's just hilarious. He's shooting a case of Bud Light that he assumedly paid for. And so Bud Light freaked out and like pulled those executives or fired them or something. I just, I, why? Or Mars took grief for candy, right? M&Ms. There's partly an answer where you just go, hey, we're a candy. We're a beer, you know? And I actually, the best reaction I heard was, believe it or not, Howard Stern. I heard like this clip of him saying, you know, I would just want to have Kid Rock come on and just ask him, why do you, why are you so, what are you so upset about? I was like, that's probably the right approach. Just say like, what is it? Like, because then someone has to stand up and say, I don't like that there's trans people. Okay. What, why? And then they have to kind of say, I don't think they should exist. They have to go pretty clear about what is it that they're, you know, and there's very few companies who are going to want to stand behind that philosophy in the end, because they have gay employees and they have gay customers. So it's just not going to play well to keep catering to what is a form of bigotry. No one's saying anybody has to live their lives the way everybody else does. They don't have to. But a company, they're not a government, right? They can do whatever they want. The Supreme Court just decided today, as we're talking, that a web developer doesn't have to produce a website for a gay couple or a gay cause. They called it free speech. I think it's discrimination, right? Okay, we're going to have those debates. But I don't know why people get so upset that a company you buy from is serving somebody else. What does that have to do with you, right? So again, I haven't seen a company that's done better because they've pulled back because there's people who are angry. There's always angry people when society's changing. I was looking back at the days of the little girls that were being brought into schools in Little Rock and other places in the South. Do you know those little girls are still like in their 60s? Like it's not that long ago. It's not ancient. There's people who are not that much older than me who were little girls who had to have National Guard. And I just point out that there were very upset people. Bull Connor was upset. He didn't believe in integration. He didn't believe in equal rights for black people. And the president didn't back down and say, oh, it's divisive. He sent the National Guard. So I think like Target, they got pressure for showing pride merchandise. And I get it. If you're like in finance, you're a CFO, you're like, oh, why are we dealing with this? Whatever. I don't know. You're trying to sell more stuff, right? That's partly why. And but then you back down instead of just calling the police because they got bomb threats. To me, you don't back down to that. You call the police. You call the FBI. There's bomb threats, right? They're coming after your employees. It doesn't matter why. Like, it's illegal. And I just, I think companies are going to increasingly going to just have to stand for rights. I'm just looking at the biggest change driving all of this, if I had to step way back, is not Greenpeace. It's just 
norms are changing in society. This is what always happens. Young people come up, they have different views. Millennials, Gen Z, they have measurably different views about the role of business in society. They want their companies to have values and they want to work for companies that have values. And they mostly mean rights for all kind of values. Some of them mean, I don't want the gay community, but most of them mean ever teach their own. And that's driving it. When half your workforce and growing to 75% over the next decade says, this is what we believe in, what do you do? I, I think this is hard. I get it. Change is hard. The society's changing. The world's changing. But we adjust. Companies adjust or they go under. It happens with technology, right? You're blockbuster and you disappear. I think it happens with social norms. What's expected of you as a business, it changes. And Coke and Pepsi were really like, they were the kind of companies that were really far ahead on the integration thing, right? They started bringing in black drivers, black bottlers years before it was like kind of post-World War II, right? People had served together. In the, like the military's always ahead on some of this stuff, right? Like they had integrated troops. And then there were companies who got ahead of that and had really great career opportunities for the black community in those companies. And you see it today, right? You see higher senior level people of color in some companies. So I just, I think we're going to see these battles continue. There's always going to be changes. And multinationals especially are just going to be answering to a lot of different pressures. And that means I think they just got to be consistent. Mm -hmm. If you want to be Chick-fil-A and say, we're not comfortable with this part of the movement, fine, be consistent. But you know, they took a lot of heat from the right because they hired a diversity inclusion <laughs> officer. Like that was too far, right? Like, so there's going to be a tax. It's a lot of noise. And I think companies got to stick to their guns and side with their people. Well, I think fundamentally Net Positive is an optimistic book. When we look back and we see how quickly people transitioned from whale oil to mm -hmm. kerosene, right? Yeah. it was remarkably fast. Yeah. Do you think that the transition to green energy, at least, will be as rapid as that? Yeah, I mean, so let, yeah, let's get off the social stuff, which is really complicated and people could get upset. Let's just talk about the green, the decarbonization, the core change in the world that's happening, which is also somewhat a social norm, right? We're used to gas. We're used to mm -hmm. the gas guzzling cars. It's part of our lifestyles, part of America, right? All of that. It is happening really quickly. The difference is I have this, I've seen these great pictures of like 1900, there's a yeah. city scene where there's a single engine. It's all horse drawn. 1910, like 10 years later, there's like a single horse, mm -hmm. right? It changed so fast. We're changing at a really rapid pace, but think how big the infrastructure is now, right? I mean, it's just orders of magnet. We spent 150 years building an oil infrastructure. So of course, it's easy for the oil giants to say it's going to it's gonna be around for decades more. And yet, that's what Blockbuster thought, right? And that's what Kodak thought. And it's not digital. It's not as fast. I wrote a piece in MIT Sloan Management about after Gordon Moore died, about the Moore's Law, and said a doubling every two years, basically, is so hard to get your head around that there's the famous line that your phone has more power than the Apollo oh, 11. It turns more. out that's a vast understatement yeah. that your phone has more power than NASA did like back then, like the whole of NASA. And we're kind of used to that. The pace of change in clean tech isn't that fast, but it's exponential. It's moving quickly. It's doubling every certain amount of time. And I mean, it was Bloom a Bloomberg study four or five months ago that said, if you look at how market dynamics usually work with ad adoption of technologies, something like 80 or 90 countries had hit the tipping point on both clean energy and clean cars. And that tipping point is not 50%. It's 5 to 10% sales is when the structure, 
the infrastructure behind it, the sales machinery, like it all starts to turn. You could look this up, but the EV, hybrid and electric buying has continued to grow exponentially for the last 10 years, even when in 2022, the total sales of cars was down versus the previous year. And yet it's still, the EV side went up exponentially. So yes, it's going to move really quickly. It's the part I, I'm not a futurist. I just look at the data today. I think we're going to get to a mostly green grid. I talked to a Shell person the other day who said, oh, there's all these studies showing you can't have a green grid. I'm like, I don't know. I've talked to the head of the largest utility in the US and they're planning on 80 or 90% renewables. They wouldn't do that if it was physically impossible. And Texas is under the greatest pressure, the greatest demand of energy they've ever had in the heat. And there was just a big story that showed that wind and solar were basically filling in the gap. Mm -hmm. There's been this story for years that somehow they're unreliable. Intermittent is not the same as unreliable. Like imagine that the story that we've been told is that the thing that we're not sure about is the sun. Just think about that for a second. We know where the sun is to the inch from now for the next thousand years. You don't know if it's cloudy all the time and where. I mean, yes, there's variation. There's also variation on whether your coal plant starts right away and whether the natural gas is working right or whether the pipes are clogged or get flooded. There's variation. But when you get to a big enough system and a big enough grid, it starts to even out. That's what a grid is. And there's increasingly large storage solutions that seemed too expensive 10 years ago and are not anymore, right? So the storage is getting bigger and faster. There's also going to be this really cool, and it started already, but this really cool interaction between more and more cars that are rolling batteries, right? They're plugged in at work during the day. They actually don't need, they could be giving energy if it's really hot, right? Then they get home and overnight, they're taking energy in from the wind that's on the grid somewhere. Then they go out and they feed it back. There's going to be this give and take between what's going to be a rolling 100 million battery fleet. And that's what utilities are planning for. I mean, this is, to me, doesn't that sound really cool and really exciting? Like, I think this is, we get lost in sustainability and all these battles and fighting climate change is so horrible. I think this is like the coolest pro-tech thing I've ever seen. We're going to have this amazing, I think, amazing world of cleaner technologies that are really smart. Buildings are going to be radically more efficient and healthier to live in and nicer to be in. Our cars, look at the air quality issue. I mean, imagine being in a city where the air is clean. You know, we saw it for a few weeks during the early pandemic when everything stopped. And that's not the way to get there. I say this all the time. I'm not saying we shut down the global economy, but that's what it's going to look like at net zero. The skies will be blue everywhere. Like I, we act like that's impossible. It's not, <laughs> except for the wildfires. That's the other, <laughs> that's causing a different problem. But I think this is really exciting times. And you're seeing the money. I mean, look, the money flowing into the clean economy is, we did already hit the tipping point. Bloomberg reported that a trillion dollars went into clean economy investments in 2022 and it passed. It was like 950 billion of fossil fuels. Like it passed for the first time. That's that you're already late into the game, right? When like, when that kind of money is speeding up and it's only speeding up. So yeah, the grid's going to change. The cars are going to change. Buildings are going to get much, much smarter. AI is going to help with all this. It's funny. My son just getting his license recently is just so annoyed that cars have this stop and go and he's, why don't they just all move at the same time? Like, he's already predicting what he hopes. The cars will all be basically self-driving or have enough technology that the light hits green, everybody moves at the same time. He's so annoyed at the slowness of the <laughs> physical system because he's used to, like, games and things that just move really quickly. I think expectations are changing, and we're going to have a pretty cool, pretty cool world if we can slow the emissions fast enough to avoid some of the worst. It's going to be fun.
So last question, you began your career yeah. at BCG and now it sounds like yeah. you've circled back to work with them on educating yeah. executives. You know, how important is it that executives get educated in issues around net positivity or sustainability? I think it's critical. I make a big part of my living speaking, but increasingly I get asked, hey, can you come spend a day, talk to the top 60 execs? I think there's just this recognition that it is kind of a language. Like I've been working on it for 20 years myself. What's the language of sustainability in business? Because it has some elements that aren't quite the same, that you're coming from a different perspective. There's reasons you're doing things that might be shared resources, shared problems that are outside in. And it's not really the way strategy has been taught. I mean, there's the five forces from Porter and there's, you know, there's always external forces, but it's far more based in kind of shared problems. And that creates some different ways of thinking about it and thinking about climate as, you know, a real scientific problem, not some political posturing as it's been made out to be that it's a scientific problem and there's a physics issue and there's this much carbon and we got to work the problem. All of that takes some fluency. I mean, it's taken me many years to kind of get even comfortable myself after getting an MBA and getting an economics degree is to speak about this a little bit differently. And so, yeah, I've gotten more and more into exec ed. BCG and I have launched a class for senior execs. And then hopefully it'll trickle down, come smaller versions of the class to more mass market middle management. Because I think it's hard until everyone's speaking the same language. And I'll tell you the two things that I see companies asking for education on, and that basically the two main things like this part of BCG I'm working with, the two main classes they have are climate and sustainability in one and AI on the other, right? Everybody gets that they better figure out this AI thing, that it's different. When I started playing with ChatGPT like six months ago, I had that same feeling I did when I first started searching Google. And when I first bought something from Amazon, I had that, oh, wow, this is different. This is not just an incremental change. There's something fundamentally different. Companies seem to get that. And so you're going to see massive focus on how do we get everyone up to speed on the basics of AI? I'm seeing companies say, we have 140,000 people. How do I get them up to speed on climate like quickly? What's the hour version, two hour version, 10 hour version for the, you know, the thousand people that maybe really need it? What's the best way? I don't have the answer. I'm not, I'm actually not an academic. I'm playing as one and getting more like one as I get into this, but there's a learning journey here that I think has to be hopefully taken with an open mind and we can put the political posturing as much as possible to the side. And especially on climates to me always been just such a shame because it is a physics and scientific issue with political ramifications about how do you deal with it. That's been turned into a political issue in this country mainly, but in many places. There was a reason to do that. It slows things down. It mucks up the works. But I hope we can take it back out and just view it as a physics and business problem. Like, work the problem as in that great movie, the Mars movie with, you know, talking about going to Mars, you know, and getting Matt Damon back where he's got this huge problem. He says, I'm just going to, I'm going to science the shit out of this. Like, I just think that it's like that kind of moment in society. We got to science this. And I think that's, again, that's really exciting to the people who like to solve problems, right? How do we get to zero carbon? How do we run our society on zero carbon? We don't have all the answers. We got some years to do it, but we got to move. So yeah, I think I am optimistic on that front. I think the tech's there. I think the people really want it, younger people especially. So we're going to be moving. We're going to be moving very quickly and it's scary. It means some businesses aren't going to make it. That's always been true, right? Well, Andrew, we'll be happy to welcome you as an honorary academic. <laughs> the book is called Net Positive, but also Green to Gold and a Big Pivot. Let's yep. hopefully chat again soon. Yeah, I would love to. Good luck with your work. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.